The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chott. My guest today is Michelle Goldberg, an op-ed columnist at The New York Times. Prior to joining the newspaper, she worked at The Nation and right here at Slate, where we were briefly colleagues. And she's also written books on everything from reproductive rights to yoga. Since she joined the paper, she has been writing about a number of current topics, including the Russia investigation, cleavages in the Democratic Party, and the Me Too movement. Michelle Goldberg joins me now from Slate Studios in New York. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Isaac. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I was actually going to start with something else. But before we before we recorded, uh, I made a joke about uh, Omarosa and you said you thought uh, the Omarosa soap opera that we're, we're watching is actually pretty interesting. It might be overstated to say that <laughs> the Omarosa soap opera is interesting. But what I do think is significant is that, you know, since this whole kind of debacle began, right, since ever since this administration started, I've been sort of waiting for who the defectors were going to be, you know, and it seemed like there was a huge open market for the first person to come out of this administration and tell us what a catastrophe it is, which everybody knows that a lot of people in it think it's a catastrophe because they, you know, kind of tell journalists off the record, but nobody has sort of come out guns blazing like George Stephanopoulos with Clinton or um, I forget the name of George W. Bush's spokesperson who wrote a tell-all book. Maybe it's a little early, but I've Paul been... Paul sort- <clears throat> yeah, did for, from Treasury. Or he didn't write it, but he... he no, there was somebody... Um, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I've been sort of waiting for that person because these aren't people who are particularly loyal to Trump. They're trashing their reputation. And there's just like an opening in the market and it hasn't come. And it's been surprising as to why. I think we now know that one of the reasons is because they're locking people up with these um, hush money deals and NDAs. But so Omarosa, I feel like, is the first person and, you know, as unreliable as she is, as craven and venal as she is, she's the first person to do the right thing and come out of this administration and tell us as much as she can about what's going on. And obviously, she's not a reliable narrator, but she almost doesn't have to be because she has recordings. And so, you know, I mean, the the bar for kind of most honorable former Trump appointee is extraordinarily low, but I feel like Omarosa clears it. Well, what's interesting to me about that is you have people in the administration or you had people in the administration who've left uh, Gary Cohn, H.R. Uh, McMaster. Dina Powell, people who were called the adults in the room who were considered to have more centrist politics, people who I think it was kind of assumed deep down found Trump gross or uh, not suited to be president in some way. And they've all kept quiet. And so what's interesting is it sort of maybe this is another example of kind of the rottenness of the establishment as it existed before Trump is you don't have these people coming out and saying anything. And instead you have Omarosa and and sorry, I'll let you speak, but uh, you also have Steve Bannon who has been talking to reporters and clearly gave Michael Wolff, however believable you found that book, a ton of information, some of which made the White House look bad. So it hasn't been anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's like a, a source of, you know, profound national shame that people are leaving this administration, um, you know, like Gary Cohen, like Dina Powell, like Mark Short, and being sort of reabsorbed into polite society when they should be shunned until they at least come clean about what they've seen. But there's there's research actually about kind of who whistleblowers are likely to be. Um, IL Press wrote a book about this, about kind of people who break ranks. And the people who break ranks are not they're not really like sort of cynical individualists, as you might think, or like iconoclasts. They're people who are true believers 
and then feel betrayed, right? And so I think in some ways, maybe one reason there hasn't been that many of those people in Trump world is because they are all so incredibly cynical and corrupt, right? I mean, the closest thing to a true believer in Trumpism might, in fact, be somebody like Steve Bannon. Um, You know, and so for that reason, it sort of makes sense that you don't have kind of people who feel like this thing they believed in didn't live up to their aspirations or Right. You just don't have that because because it's just a big grift. Yeah. And but yeah, no, I think that that's right. And I also I I also think, though, that you talk about people being kind of reabsorbed into into polite society. And it does feel like one of the constant themes of the past year and a half, whether it was Charlottesville or something else, is that there's a sense of or kids at the border being separated. There's a sort of sense occasionally that things cannot go on, that this is beyond the pale, that the people who did this um, need to be kind of socially sanctioned or punished in some way. And then you kind of get back to normal and CEOs drop out and then they meet with Trump again, you know, post Charlottesville or people will briefly speak up about children being separated, but it nothing seems to last um, for a long time. And that's that's one of the alarming things, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, I absolutely agree. And I think, yeah, what happens is that partly it's just it's hard to maintain the state of appropriate outrage and horror, right, that this administration deserves. I mean, you just kind of can't live in that state of of heightened um, emotion all the time. It's really hard. And so people sort of revert to normal or something kind of akin to normal with this sense of unease in the background. And then every once in a while, something happens that makes it impossible to forget the fact that we have this, you know, disgusting authoritarian white nationalist regime that's, you know, kind of destroying everything about that was ever good about this country, root and branch. And all of a sudden, everybody kind of mobilizes. But it just... It it it's, it never sustains, and part of I wonder if part of the reason it never sustains is because there's so much impotence. Like, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens after November if Democrats win, and there's finally something that that can be done, right? That you can have like a new set of hearings, a new set of investigations, a new set of subpoenas um, instead of just you know protests and calling your congressmen. Um, well, so I actually this actually connects to something else I wanted to talk to you about. You said this idea that nothing can be done. And what I've found when I talk to people, especially people on the left, is there's this weird dichotomy. At one level, you have this hopelessness about where things are, this real depression about where the country is, and this sense of I can't focus on it every minute because it's just too awful. At the same time, I've also found what I consider at least – real kind of naive hopefulness about this is all going to be over at some point and Trump is going to get removed from office or he will be impeached or the Mueller investigation is going to somehow take him down. And I, I do feel talking to people there, there is this real sense out there that at some level, you know, this is going to come crashing down. And I, I don't think that's the case. I'm wondering if you feel like you've felt that, too, that that there is this sense of that. I just think we we have no idea, right? I don't think there's anything wrong with holding out that hope. I mean, it's bad to hold out that hope if it stops you from doing things in the present, that, right? Because ultimately, it's the people who've been super mobilized and who are potentially going to elect a new Congress who could bring this thing to an end or at least contain it. And so in as much as people think that Mueller is going to be some, you know, Mueller is going to kind of swoop down from the sky and 
you know, they're all going to go to jail. Um, if if that's if people are kind of complacent, but I don't get the sense that people are complacent. I mean, everywhere I go, there's just this unbelievable amount of political activity and organizing going on. At the same time, I mean, I don't think it's I think it could all come crashing down, you know, and I think eventually it will all come crashing down in one way or the other, um, you know, in part because just be, because there's so much criminality and also so much incompetence. Like I, I, I remember with George W. Bush when the worship and the sort of parallel reality around his supporters, it maybe wasn't quite as, te- as intense, but it was pretty bad. And in some way, and it was also oppressive because it had a lot more cultural sanction, right? There was like a lot more taboo about, you know, speaking out against him and the war on terror. I mean, if you look at what happened to the Dixie Chicks and Kanye West saying that it was a huge deal saying Bush didn't care about black people. But that was much later, right? So by the time that had happened, that had started to crack. Like, I remember really well being at the Conservative Political Action Conference. Um, It was after his reelection when you could just feel the support like draining away, you could just feel people kind of giving up on their illusions about this man. And I think that that will happen eventually. But I mean, God help us all if it doesn't happen until he's you know, reelected. I feel like the damage will be, um, you know, permanent. But eventually, I mean, everything comes to an end. Eventually, this this will come to an end. I suppose at some yeah at at some point it will come to an end. I I guess I meant come to an end um not from an election but from um something else like impeachment and removal from office or something like that. Uh, maybe we disagree. I didn't mean to imply that people were were sitting on their hands or people were not being active. I definitely think they are, but I do think that people a lot of people on the left have a false sense of how difficult it will be that the the next scandal will bring him down. This will finally be the thing that kind of turns people against him. I do feel that that sense is out there. And I, I think the media is at some degree to blame. I mean, if you turn on MSNBC or CNN or you go to websites like like Slate or like a lot of liberal websites, every bit of news is blown up into a big story. And it seems like unprecedented in sort of how terrible it is and what's happening. And I do think it, but that's right. I agree it's right. And I but I also think I'm not I'm not saying that these things are not, you know, there are many, many things have come out in the Russia investigation that in a normal administration we would be so shocked by. I totally agree that they're big stories, but I do think it's given people a sense that the next, you know, at some point he's going to be brought down. The scandals will bring him down. I mean, I just, you know, because I feel like, right, it feels like like it always feels like something has to give. Right. There's like and the tension of of something have to something has to give. But it never does. And so you just feel this mounting, mounting, mounting tension um, that then, yeah, people feel like eventually there's going to be some sort of cathartic moment when it's revealed to all and it's no longer deniable, you know, kind of what disgusting things he's done. Um, I think that revelation is actually going to come. The question is how much it will matter given our kind of current political dynamics. Right. I mean, that's the thing about the supposed N-word tape that – was rumored for a long time going back to 2015 or 16, I guess, was that, you know, this would end his candidacy and so on. And now it's like, okay, there'll be a tape and it'll be a bad story for two weeks. But it's sort of hard to conceive of your country and where politics are that it doesn't feel anymore like it would be the end. 
No, I don't think it, you know, I don't think it would be the end, but I also don't have quite as much fatalism about it as some people. I mean, I think it would be damaging and there's a lot of there's like a slow accumulation of damage, right? He's really unpopular. He's only president and only able to work his will because of the anti-democratic counter-majoritarian structures of our government, but at a certain point even those can be overcome. And so it's not that I think that, you know, 63 million Trump voters are like, he's racist. Well, that's a bridge too far. But, you know, I think there are a lot of Republicans who or a lot of Trump voters who really don't see anything short of saying that word as racism and who also feel very strongly that it's unfair to accuse them of racism. It'll make It'll make that cognitive dissonance, the cognitive dissonance of trying to justify Trump or trying to explain why why the Trump movement is not racist a little bit harder. It'll I think it'll peel off a couple of people. And, you know, at a certain point, it's like only the slow erosion will make this 30 percent presidency unsustainable. Yeah. And, you know, when elections come down to 90,000 voters in three states or whatever, whatever the exact numbers were last time. Yeah, 80,000. 80,000. Yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the Democratic Party, which you've been writing about uh, in several columns and doing some reporting on. What's your sense, broadly speaking, of kind of where the Democratic Party is right now? We're talking, um, you know, about 90 days before the midterms. Democrats are up ahead about eight points, I would say, seven, eight points in um, generic congressional ballot polls. And there seems there were just some elections in Wisconsin and other primaries around the country. Where do you kind of see the Democratic Party right now? So whenever I'm in New York, I can like work myself into this state of like really bleak despair. And then I go out and travel and meet, you know, it's not even necessarily Democratic Party activists as much as like indivisible activists or, you know, Democratic Socialists of America chapters or people, you know, these sort of grassroots groups that have sprung up since the election and are just doing so much work. And it just it always makes me feel like so much more hopeful about the future. Right. There's I mean, just you meet them everywhere, um, particularly, you know, you hear it, the same story over and over again of these kind of middle aged women who, you know, they voted but they didn't necessarily pay super close attention to primaries. You know, maybe they had to look up what congressional district they were in and who woke up the day after the election and were so shattered and, you know, kind of looked around for somewhere they could go and found, you know, either an offshoot of Pantsuit Nation or a local indivisible meeting. And you meet these women and they go to meetings now four or five nights a week. They have all new friends. They are just like astonishing organizers and they have such um they're kind of using this intense local knowledge that they have you know you kind of can't replicate that when it comes to canvassing somebody who just like knows everyone on the block and when they get home and you know when like a wife might be persuadable even if her husband isn't that kind so you see that being deployed everywhere and that i think is why you're seeing these you know numbers in some of the special elections, these swings that are even bigger than the swings you see on the generic ballot. And so and and also it's just, you know, kind of infusing the party with all this new energy. You have all of these candidates who probably wouldn't have run in a normal cycle. You have all of these women candidates and the research about women candidates in general is that women are less likely to kind of envision themselves as a 
member of Congress or senator, right? They don't really necessarily aspire to be politicians. They're more likely to enter politics because they want to do a specific thing or because like a specific thing has motivated them. So this specific disaster of Trump has just forced all of these really interesting, high quality people into the candidate pool. And so I think the Democratic Party is smart. I mean, I feel like there's such a cliche of political coverage that like Democrats are in disarray. Democrats can't agree on a message. I think it's sort of smart for them to take a step back and let these local candidates shape their messages in a way that that suits their districts. Stay tuned for more from my interview with Michelle Goldberg after a break. Have you made anything of the fact that if you look at if you look at data, it seems like from a lot of the primary elections we've had and just poll data that it seems like the specific um, specific aspects of Trump that have motivated a lot of Democrats and, uh, you know, indep- Democratic leaning independents has we've really seen huge upticks in turnout figures in areas, um, a lot of suburban areas, a lot of areas with um, white liberal women. Less so, as far as we can tell, in minority areas with a lot of Latino voters, a lot of young voters, seeing the same jump in enthusiasm that we've seen in among suburban women and the groups you've been talking about. What have you made of that? Do you think that do you think that there's something that's interested me that in in what we've seen so far that we haven't seen that same jump in all aspects of the Democratic Party? Yeah, I mean, and and I think it's something that people need to turn around. And I think, you know, some of the candidates out there who are most exciting, like Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor in Georgia, you know, is putting a huge amount of energy into registering and reaching, you know, like rural African-American and African-American women in particular um, in that state, you know. But I think part of it is that somebody actually has to go out and reach them and speak to them. And so African-American women, I mean, African-American women are the reason that we have Doug Jones instead of Roy Moore, right? So they are, people are still turning out. But I've seen those Latino um, enthusiasm gap. They're, that's all, and they're also the reason Latino voters are probably a huge part of the reason that Beto O'Rourke has a shot in, in Texas. But I've seen the same figures that you're talking about, I think, particularly in Florida. And I do wonder if part of the things thing about these resistance women, these kind of you know suburban white liberals is just and I don't say this in a bad way I'm I'm trying to think of think of a word that doesn't have as pejorative a connotation as entitlement but they do have a sense of like this government is supposed to work is supposed to represent me right so one thing I've heard a lot of times um when I've gone out to various districts is that a lot of these women you know they woke they woke up they were like really scared, right? I was really scared the day after the election. It felt like incredibly unstable, like they were giving the keys to the most powerful nation on earth to this, you know, lunatic. And they went to their members of Congress's office and they expected them to meet with them and hear their concerns. And they wanted to talk to them about, even if they were Republicans, they kind of wanted to talk to them about like, where were they willing to check Trump and what were they willing to do? And they were really shocked when these Republican members of Congress refused to meet with them, right? Maybe a, you know, someone who was poor or a minority wouldn't be so shocked. It wouldn't even occur to them to kind of expect the members of Congress to meet with them and hear their concerns. But these are people who were 
stunned to be treated as kind of dismissively and contemptuously as these members of Congress treated them and then organized very quickly to try to get new members of Congress, right? So these are people who are used to having a degree of agency in their community who all of a sudden are being treated, you know, maybe the way a lot of other people in the community have always been treated. That's that, yeah. That's uh, that's an interesting answer. I um I wanted to ask also when you talked to some of the groups that you were talking about. I think that a lot of the mainstream media coverage, which is cliched about the Democratic Party, but one of the ways it's being talked about now is kind of this um, this debate between kind of younger, more left wing Democrats and kind of the party establishment, which is older and seen as more centrist. Um, is that something that you feel is is um, I, I think it's easy to kind of overstate the degree to which these fights are ideological at the ground on the ground because most people are not super ideological most voters. And I was wondering if you think that kind of the debate we've been seeing especially after Ocasio-Cortez's win in New York state that um New York City I should say that these debates going on on the ground in the Democratic Party are ideological in some way or more kind of sociological and characterological about sort of um, new faces versus old faces about being kind of more pugnacious, um, things like that. Yeah, I think it's the latter. And I would add that it's like generational and there's a sort of insider outsider thing. Right. So that, you know, so, for example, when I was in Pennsylvania, um, the same people were, who were canvassing for Connor Lamb canvassed for two of the women who um, two of the. Democratic Socialist of America candidates who were elected to state house seats to replace two longtime Democratic incumbents. Connor Lamb being the guy who won right. in Pennsylvania. Right. So Connor yeah. Lamb, you know, was this sort of like pro gun, socially moderate um, person who ran in a very Trumpy district in rural Pennsylvania. This, I met people who had canvassed both for him and were really excited about him and had also canvassed for these young. Um, democratic socialist women and we're really excited about them and we're really excited just about the idea of new faces in the democratic party kind of new energy in the democratic party people who would be accountable to the grassroots and so i i feel like you know i was just in orange county which um is a super interesting place right because orange county is the birthplace of modern conservatism um, you know, I think it was either Forbes or Fortune, like in the 60s, called it nut country because it was so far right. And now Orange, you know, Orange County is where, where Dana Rohrabacher's district is, like Daryl Issa, um, a bunch of these really vulnerable districts. And at least some of them are probably going to go blue for the first time almost ever. Right. And so but this is these are like rich, rich areas, you know, where people are just sort of like morally offended by by Donald Trump, but, you know, are not kind of on board with the Democratic Socialists of America. But I couldn't really find anybody. And I and I asked people who expressed any concern about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or that direction, the Democratic Party. And like all I heard was, you know, A, we're really concerned about young people getting out to vote. So that's great. And she's good for our district. She's good for her district, not our district. I want to ask uh, briefly about your new jobs. You've been writing a column for The Times now for how long? A little over a almost, year? No, not, um, oh. I, it was last September, so almost a year. Okay. And so you write twice a week? Yes. And do you enjoy the job? I love it. Oh, my God. I love it so much. Really? It seems like it would be kind of, you know, hmm. 
I mean, I would I would love to have a New York Times <laughs> column, but I mean, like it would it seems like, you know, having to come up with two column ideas a week, it would be kind of exhausting. You'd run out of ideas now. Um, I mean, I feel like maybe I mean, if I think it was, if it was purely about me sitting in a room trying to squeeze ideas out of my brain, I would run out of them. But there's so much happening, you know, that, that, that there's a kind of it's of such a fertile time, you know, to to be writing. Right. There's kind of always something to me. There's a challenge to kind of balance like writing off the news versus trying to write something that is a little bit more off the radar or how much to do like reporting over a few days when often you're going to have to discard it at the last minute because something bonkers happens that you feel like you have to respond to. Um, But there's been very few days when I've like woken up on a column day and been like, oh, fuck, what do I do? Right. Well, but I, I mean, you were saying you, you're someone who, before you went to the Times, kind of did a lot of different types of writing. You did reported stuff and you also did kind of column writing. Mm-hmm. Do you have kind of some theory of column writing that, you know, one out of three should be reported or one out of three should be on a cultural subject rather than politics? Or do you kind of think about that in your head at all? Or Not really. And I think maybe I haven't been there long enough. Like maybe once I, like it still feels like a, it's weird that you said over a year because it still feels like a new job to me. And so I don't have any kind of big overarching, like, formula. Um, Maybe I'll develop one, you know, if I'm lucky enough to stay there that long. There's been a debate at the Times and other places, other websites and uh, publications about kind of how much publications that are perceived as being centrist or liberal about how much kind of conservative commentary that they should be publishing and what kind of conservative arguments and whether uh, people representing pro-Trump arguments should be part of the debate at these publications. And it seems like the way the Times, broadly speaking, has dealt with it is having several regular conservative columnists and also having kind of outside op-eds that often take a conservative or um, non-liberal point of view, but at the same time, not really running pro-Trump columns or commentary. I was wondering if you think that what you think of kind of that strategy of what what you think of that strategy and do you wish there was more pro-Trump commentary? Do you wish there was less conservative commentary? How do you think about it? Well, so I don't want to say anything about the kind of broader strategy because it just feels like outside of my wheelhouse. I think that there's a fundamental challenge in representing conservative argument right now because I, and I wrote this in, in a column before that, like, it used to be this cliche of politics that politics was a war of ideas. Um, and now all the people who believe in ideas are on one side and then there's the Trump people on the other Right. For whom ideas are at best um, sort of tools to use to um, to manipulate people. But they're not really invested in they're invested, I think, in they're invested in in race. They're invested in a vision of how America should look. But there's they're not invested in an ideology in the same way, except for somebody like, say, you know, Richard Spencer or maybe the people who have ideas right now, the people who have pro-Trump ideas are people who are generally beyond the pale, right? Yeah, so he's, he's not going to get a Times column. So, to, so, yeah. so if you try to think, try to think of a pro-Trump person who is neither racist nor dishonest. I mean, can you think of someone? Uh, I mean, it's 
a pro-Trump. I mean, I, I'm sure they're... And by dishonest, yeah. they don't mean that they're making arguments that I don't agree with. I mean that they're making arguments that I don't think they agree with or that they don't really care whether or not what they say is true, right? Like an experience I've had several times, you know, I do a, I do a fair amount of like TV stuff, right? And so you'll be sitting next to, you know, often I'm on MSNBC where it's just liberals, but sometimes I'm on TV with conservatives. And You'll you'll be sitting next to someone who will be kind of rolling their eyes about Trump and talking about him very dismissively. And then the cameras come on and they're defending him. Right. That that what is the value in publishing that argument that's not even believed by the person who's making it? You know, and so it's again, the people there's either people who are kind of defending him just like for purely cynical mercenary reasons or there are people who have truly indefensible views, right? I mean, the closest person you could come to maybe threading that needle, right? Like an intellectually honest case for Trumpism is probably Michael Anton. So Michael Anton wrote um, the Flight 93 election under a pseudonym in the run-up to the campaign, basically saying that like America was going down, you know, because of unfettered immigration, that America was on this path to disaster and that maybe you couldn't trust Trump, but the only strategy now was to like storm the cockpit. And then he became a Trump national security official. I forget his exact title. Since he left, he has, I mean, he wrote this piece recently for the Washington Post about why we should, um, why the president should issue an executive order. I can't remember exactly what the mechanism was, but some kind of unilateral attempt to revoke birthright citizenship um, which was crazy and extremely racist, but I think is about as close as you're going to get to a sort of mainstream, intellectually sincere Trumpist column. And so what do you do with that? I think it's a genuine challenge. Yeah. And I think it's also a challenge for anti-Trump conservatives because I think it's um, – I mean them writing anti-Trump columns is – one thing that we've seen, and that's fine. They should do that if they oppose the president. But it's also, you know, one role of conservatives in a sort of healthy democratic society should be to explain why conservative position X is good or why liberal policy Y should be moderated in some way or whatever it is. And it, it just um, because what's coming out of the White House, because of what's coming out of the conservative administration out of Washington is so dishonest in so many ways and because there's nothing to really sink your teeth into, I, th- I think that's been a real challenge for them, too. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, this the, it used to be a truism that politics was a war of ideas, that the conservative movement was saturated with ideas. And, you know, they had all sorts of think tanks and training programs and, you know, journals designed to inculcate this whole intellectual philosophy that at least um, in theory undergirded their policies. And Trump has just like in a second rendered that all of that irrelevant. Yeah. And I mean, to bring this full circle, I mean, we were you were saying earlier about people on the left that it's often less ideological than you think. I think one of the things we've realized about conservatives is that uh, I think a lot of liberals maybe thought that there was this huge part of the country that was completely conservative and completely dedicated to conservative principles. And that was what's most important to them. And it turns out they were mostly in it for the racism. On that note, uh, Michelle Goldberg is a columnist for The New York Times, and she writes twice a week on Tuesday. What other day do you write? Um, Tuesday and Friday. Tuesday and Friday. And uh, you can read her there. And uh, Michelle, thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. 
I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Special thanks to Seinfeld lover TJ Raphael for extra help at the Slate Studios in Brooklyn. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at ichotner for more information about the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.